Welcome to the Evolution Exchange NHS podcast. We're here today bringing the best technical leaders from across the NHS to talk about topics which matter to them, as well as the challenges that they're facing day to day. I'm Louis and I'm your host today. Today we're joined by Arjun, Azra, Emma and Kirsty to discuss senior leadership's viewpoints on the integrated care systems. The views expressed by the guests are their own and do not necessarily reflect official position or policy of their organisations. But before we delve deeper into the topic today, let's work our way around the room with some introductions. Kirsty, I'll come to you first. Hi, I'm Kirsty Watson. I'm Digital Director for Northampton ICB, responsible for ICB and ICS Digital. Thank you, Kirsty. And Emma? Hi, Emma Turner. I'm Head of Innovation at Cambridgeshire and Peterborough ICB in a joint role with Health Innovation East. Brilliant. And Azra? Hi, Nuri. I'm Azra, Head of Strategy at Birmingham and Solihull ICB, and I work on delivering the strategic objectives that we set out in our Birmingham and Solihull Joint Forward Plan, our 10-year strategy um, and our inception framework. Thank you. Um, last but not least, Arjun. Hi, Louie. Hi, everyone. So my name is Arjun Sikhand. I'm the Director of Innovation for Sorry Heartlands ICS and responsible for innovation, sustainability and uh, the research agenda. Brilliant. Thank you, everyone. Now that we've got some context to each of you, uh, we'll move into today's topic. So the panel today have all came up with a question to provide to the group around the ICSs. Um, as usual, I'll work my way around the room, asking each of you the reasons behind the questions, and then we'll open the floor um, okay, so first of all, we'll move on to Azra. So how do we ensure ICSs function in a patient-centric way? Um, give us a bit of context as to why you want to ask that question today. So as head of strategy, but with a previous background in personalised care, working regionally, nationally, and then locally, what I can sometimes find is when we're talking about transformation and innovation, we can sometimes lose sight of why we're doing it. And I think the whole purpose of an integrated care system and the integrated function is to really concentrate on those outcomes and putting the patient almost at the centre of every piece of work that we're doing, whether it's innovation, research or transformation. So that was the main emphasis behind the question today. Brilliant. Thank you. And who wants to come in on that one first? Yeah, Kirsty. I completely agree with you, Ezra. I think that Historically, the, the NHS seems to have been set up with a competitive approach where organisations are competing against each other and focus very much on money and uh, specific deadlines and, and so on, rather than the, the patient themselves. I do think that the ICB is starting to see a difference that the way we're working together as organisations, we're aiming to collaborate and work together to deliver improvements rather than trying to uh, track performance and, and beat each other with sticks. Um, but I think we've still got quite a long way to go. And I think there's there's more to do. Definitely an Arjun. Yeah, I think it's a very interesting topic. I think um, I'm going to play a slightly counter um, viewpoint on this. I, I, I'm not negating the importance of the patient in, um, in involvement in this, but where I think people focus too much on patient centricity when I think they should focus on system centricity because, you know, what may be good for the patient may bankrupt the system and therefore you're not doing your, your best for any other patient. So it's about putting that balance in perspective and making sure that the patient is integral and part of any decision making, but not the centre of any decision making um, moving forward. Great, over to you, Azra. 
I think I completely agree with you there, Arjun. But my challenge back to that would be is um, if we make it outcome focused in order to make it patient focused, I think that's then the happy medium between what you're talking about and what I'm talking about. So we're really truly on the out, uh, basically on the outcomes that we've all set as ICBs. Then I think that, like I said, that I think that helps meet us halfway with that. Yeah, Arjun. Well, I'd, I'd come back. I think I would love for the ICSs and ICBs to go to outcomes focused. I mean, <clears throat> in innovation work, we, you know, I make it a standard that we do milestones and outcomes, not activity measures. Um, and so it's, it is a huge culture change that is required from an NHS point of view and from a system point of view to move to, to, to outcomes. And that just then introduces, you know, going into value-based payment systems and changing, you know, how care is delivered in, in, in a much more appropriate way. I think you wanted to come in there, Kirsty. Yeah, I, I think I was coming in a little bit from that personal point of view that I understand we've got to balance the finances, but there's also that challenge of every patient can only see through their own eyes or when you're a, a relative, you all want what's best. And that's where I think we need to rely on NICE and, and our big agreements around what is and isn't appropriate. And if it's approved and it's deemed appropriate, we ought to be thinking about providing the the best treatment but focused on the evidence so all the work we've been doing around cancer tracking and looking at which regimens work best um, and actually we found some of them you need less chemotherapy appointments and some have been able to move from four to three because actually the overall outcomes for the patients balanced with their their symptoms along the way it was a better approach so the more evidence-based general uh, data collection and analytics we can do the better we can provide a solution that works for both um yeah i was just going to touch on i think it comes down to um how we focus on what the problem is rather than um go straight to the solution and almost what within that what matters to the patient and having that as a um an insight that we use to shape what that that implementation or what what decisions we make um but from a practical point of view and with health foundation funding came jim peterborough has got um an established innovation hub and they've set up a citizen participation group and that's had some really positive feedback where they've challenged the approach and what innovations we might go for based on that patient view and i think that's been quite helpful in a strategic approach to innovation it's not necessarily representing a patient voice but it's just given that challenge and so i've got a few examples that i can use where we're really trying to focus the work that we're doing on being outcome focused as well as also putting the patients at the center of what we're doing so one of the more strategic examples is integrated neighborhood teams so we're entering the fifth or sixth week of um, a 12-week trial period where we're really looking at 30 to 50,000 people in each um, integrated neighborhood team and almost but what we mean by making it patient-centric is what we have heard from our citizens is they want one professional to sort of see every time they have, have a concern, especially linked to one particular healthcare problem. So we'll have one individual in those integrated neighbourhood teams coordinating the care for that citizen, but they're not just looking at health either. So the idea of the integrated neighbourhood teams is you'd have local authority within that team you'd have some maybe somebody from the acute if that's relevant etc as well as from the community trust to almost build the package around the neighborhood rather than a pathway that suits either the acute trust the community trust 
or primary care, etc. So, and one of the things that we're currently working towards, it's very exciting in Birmingham Hall at the moment, is the perfect week. So we've all heard of the perfect week in acute trust, but we're now trialing it with one of our localities in the east. Uh, with the idea being, if we look at the population and where we think the most sort of risk risk or need is, is what what can we put in there to run the perfect lo- week in that locality? Um, so we're excited to see the output of that. And the only other thing I'd mention is almost breaking it down to a granular level. But something that we've ha- held at an ICS level is, uh, Emma, as you mentioned, it's about having that conversation with the individuals as well as the relevant partners around that individual inputting into the healthcare and having that true shared decision-making conversation and translating from the atypical conversation between a clinician and individual being what is the matter with you when they're coming through the door to what matters to you. And a real practical tool that we've put in place locally that the ICB led on, um, joining joining up with some neighbouring ICSs was um, develop our own accredited shared decision-making module. So following the NICE guidance that every health and social care member of staff should be having a true shared decision-making conversation, we now have an accredited ICS-owned module that we can roll out with our system partners to ensure we're meeting the quality of that conversation. That then should give us back the data of what the need is out there to become a more outcome-focused system around certain areas where those conversations are taking place i mean like i said there's many more examples that i could give that uh, i think those are the key ones that i would really highlight at this stage thanks for that insight Azra. and over to you arjun yeah i just want to say i think that's a fantastic approach i really like that because in my experience what i've had so far especially when you look at your mandatory training it's not fit for purpose and they're just sticking with the traditional old model and so what you're doing here is really putting front and center the new training which is functional and relevant for icbs ics's and the system um which is a great way of moving forward yeah what, sure. I, what i would like to add to that is the module itself was actually co-produced with our workforce so we actually we, we had a great many number of um, focus groups with our workforce from across the system to tr- to truly co-produce and design that module. So in a way, what helps in embedding it is actually them owning it by co-producing it. Great, thank you. And I think that really highlights the collaborative nature of the ICBs or how, how we want the ICBs to run going into the future. Um, so we move on to the second question today, which is Kirsty's. Uh, she's asking the group, how do we better support those who are digitally disadvantaged, including our staff members as well? Uh, thanks, Louis. Um, my main concern is that as we're widening the, the digital um, deliveries, we're actually getting to a point where we're starting to disadvantage some of the people that are most disadvantaged already in society. Um, so that could be those that have got disabilities and accessibility needs. Uh, those that lack digital capabilities, uh, those with literacy challenges, with English as a foreign language, or more and more at the moment, poverty. We're starting to see that um, some more of our communities are having to forego broadband access as part of as the cost of living challenge is hitting them. Um, and we're starting to see the increase in um, that lack of access to data in order to be able to access healthcare solutions. 
Um, and I'm, I'm interested in any ideas of others have that we can help mitigate that. Yeah, over to you, Asha. Thanks, Kirsty. It's a really interesting question and really pertinent, I think, to, to the agenda that we're all working to. Um, some of the work that our digital team have done um, locally is the engagement bit. It's engagement, engagement, engagement every step of the way. Um, and it's, it's almost starting each digital solution with understanding the needs across the staff and the population that might be using what the tool that's being designed. Um, there's always a risk that creating any digital solution will exclude some who are not as comfortable with technologies. Um, and I think there's always a need to almost maintain a way of access that doesn't include digital for certain um, population areas and certain individuals. But one of the solutions that we have um, across the ICS is we're working closely with our, the Birmingham City Council local authority um, to build on the work that they're already doing in this area to create a network of digital ambassadors and super users um, to help provide training and influence within the local area and in some cases actually provide the equipment and the access as well in some of the in some of the community hubs um, and you know in, in some of the conversations that we've been having locally is there's no reason why we couldn't do that across our system so where there may be individuals working in the system that may not have the same level of access or ability, there's no reason why you couldn't have champions at work or those super users to help in that way as well. Back to you, Kirsty. Uh, thanks, Azra. I, I completely agree with you. That's one of the areas I'm really interested in looking at um, about using the, the warm hubs and, and the other existing facilities that we've got around the system, uh, both to add that digital, we've thought of digital champions. I quite like your digital ambassadors though but someone that can help do that care navigation and digital um, route finding. Um, and we've started to look at potentially working with some charities that might be able to offer some kit and, and data um, that uh, might give us some opportunities there. Um, I, I think that it, otherwise it becomes quite difficult. If we're just loaning equipment to people, then you become quite responsible for how they use it. But if we can give people some equipment, it also gives them that freedom to use for other purposes, for job applications, for study that otherwise they might be disadvantaged with. Emma? I would completely agree with everything that's been said. I think um, working with our local communities and using our partners in this are really key. Um, during COVID in a previous role, um, where digital solutions worked well for all or the um, majority was using local communities, charities, councils, because they know their communities better than we could ever understand them. And they're more trusted at times as well. Um, so I think that was really powerful. And I think it links back to that patient centric and population health management and that working with local cohorts of patients to understand what's best for each patient and there's not one route isn't going to work for all and about how we look at it as a holistic view of access or delivery. <laughs> so actually to come back to Kirsty on the, the provision of equipment. Um, so I, I was involved in the beginning of a conversation locally. I, I wouldn't be able to give the latest update, but there was a conversation locally around approaching local businesses. So where they're updating their IT systems rather than throwing it away or not knowing what to do with it etc 
uh, we, they actually give it to the local authority to give it where there's pockets of poverty where access to that technology would be a problem. So that's one of the other conversations I know was happening locally, um, which I'm hoping is getting some traction. And Arjun, I think you want to come in as well. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I think there's lots of there's lots of avenues that you can do down this route. And the one that I was just thinking of, um, you know, I just was reading in the paper the other day that library services and, and library buildings are going to be opening over winter to provide heat and shelter for people who can't afford to heat their homes. So I think, you know, utilising libraries, utilising homeless shelters, charities, they may be a good option for especially the, the vulnerable um, moving forward and, and especially into the winter months. Um, the other thing that may, I don't know if it, may, it will play a factor into this, but I know one of the projects that I did previously um, up in Manchester, we, we used ambassadors specifically for COPD training app, for an app that was linked with COPD. So there may be more specific areas rather than generalist, but I, I think it depends upon the need that there's definitely going to be a need for generalist support. Um, but then, you know, for more specific conditions, there may be uh, specific support required. And back to yourself, Kirsty. Thank you. Now, I, I agree with uh, uh, Arjun that I think that actually doing specific pieces of training around specific tools can be really, really helpful as a, a routine to for those people that otherwise might not use digital. And you might find that actually they then start flying with it and we certainly saw that during covid when we deployed small bits of tech to allow people to self-monitor um, and by the end of it they were uh, using teams or, or zoom to speak with their grandchildren and it offered up a, a huge um, opportunity for them that historically they haven't had before so one of the things we've started to look at with uh, private organisations around our county as well is something called the uh, Good Things Foundation. And they actually help to facilitate that movement of kit, uh, preparing it and, and also gathering data from other organisations. So to say that you can provide kit and the access to uh, data using SIMS. Um, from private organisations, but they try, they will work with your own hubs, libraries, etc., to be distribution points. So we're hoping that we might be able to do something with them that won't require us to put in place new technology capabilities, but it will build on what's already being provided by a charity, uh, but using our functions to be able to deliver those out to our citizens. Emma. Thank you. I think we've also got a responsibility of working closer with innovators, industry, SME to, under, to um, give them the understanding of our patient cohorts. And for, just for example, when we're talking to innovators, encouraging them, how can you um, build different languages that represent our local communities within your app and things like that? And I think that's having that conversation and partnership working with innovators that could support some of our patient cohorts in the future. Definitely in Arjun. Yeah, it's actually just to build upon Emma's point. I think um, <clears throat> one of the things that we may not be the best at is that uh, continuous feedback, evaluation, adaptation mechanism with digital. I know, you know, innovators will do that for their own product to see, you know, is it user for working fine? Whether they share that equally with the system to do an overall bigger picture, that bit's a bit of a grey area. So I think we need to get much better at continually evaluating 
the service and making those modifications and being more adaptive rather than just saying, oh, we've rolled out a solution and that's it until the next big innovation comes along. I think it's that continuous uh, learning piece that really needs to be um, a bit more rigorous. Great, and I hope that helps uh, answer that question, Kirsty. Um, so we move on to the third question today. Um, so Arjun's going to ask the group, how do we reduce barriers to adopting new innovations? Give us a bit of context to that, Arjun. Absolutely. I think <clears throat> uh, for me, this is a very interesting area of work because uh, one of the things that people always say the NHS has the potential for is scalability. Um, yet it's never really been realized. There's always lots of barriers between um, a good product being evidenced, having all of the right accreditations, being even on nice frameworks and actually being adopted at scale. So, you know, I mean, typical barriers that come up in big buckets, there's three things for, for consideration. One would be the technology readiness you know, or the design work. Is, it, is the technology really ready to be scaled? The second one is um, the business readiness. You know, okay, fine, you've got something that works, but what is the business or service wraparound uh, that is required? And then the third bucket here in my mind is really about the actual system readiness piece. Is the system mature enough or ready to actually adopt the innovation? And so those are the sort of three big bucket areas that I uh, view and have experience of, but I would really like to have other people's viewpoints or experiences um, in addressing those sort of challenges. Thanks, Arjun. Over to you first, Kirsty. Thank you. Uh, it, it's something that I've been discussing with my team very recently, actually. How do we innovate? Um, we've got lots of challenges as systems. We've got challenges around affordability um, and we're having to prioritise and, and target our funding at those things that are in our strategy that are part of our joint forward plan or only those things that are in our digital maturity assessment gaps, uh, which leaves little gap for innovation. So we have to target the innovation at those things where we've got genuine challenges. Uh, but we often find we're struggling with we don't know what we don't know. How do we provide information about the innovations that are happening across other systems and bring that together and point it at the people that most need it at the point that they need it? Um, and the, the I'd say organisations are often they've got the problem, but not necessarily an easy route to solution. Um, so we're starting to look at whether there's anything we can do with innovation hubs uh, and giving individuals tasks to actually go around and do that environmental scanning of what good practice, best practice and innovation looks like around other systems to potentially play that to our senior managers, our CIOs and, uh, and others that are likely to be digital decision makers. Because otherwise, the only route in for tech is when someone comes in with a new bright idea or when our NHS funding rates target us at only being allowed to spend funding on specific tools and toys. Thanks, Kirsty. Emma? Yeah, just on that point, I wondered how um, your relationship with your health innovation network, how that's supporting or not supporting you, because from our point of view and in the East, we've got quite a joined up approach and that seems to work really well, but um, it might not be the same across the UK. Uh, thanks. Uh, yeah, uh, 
it's interesting. So in our area, I'd suggest that at the moment that it's been little engagement with that innovation network. However, we have got someone new in post um, and I am really looking forward to working together to fill that gap because it is one of my few areas of red on my DMA and I really want to to move forward with innovation. So I think it, we've we've hit at the perfect time of me pulling and her, and her pushing um, and potentially we've got some really good opportunities coming forward to start working together. Over to you, Azra. Thanks, um, Louis and Kirsty. I think uh, uh, one of the things I just wanted to build on is the conversation that yourself and Emma started was, in, and one of the examples I wanted to give was in Birmingham, we've got the Birmingham Health Partnership, which is a strategic alliance between both our universities, the University of Birmingham and Aston University, the Westminster Health Innovation Network, as well as System Partners, which supports that collaboration um, and aids innovation. And the other point that I would make and this is from personal experience is I tend to go to the thought provokers those who have the bright ideas who make the most noise about a need and ask them for the solutions because you'll find they either have the network to bring together the resources to maybe drive innovation or at least have some ideas to start with. Love to Emma. In Cambridge here in Peterborough we definitely try to lay the grounds for a systematic approach and process to some of this because I think consistency and transparency on how we're going to select innovation and when and why and that draws on the problem identification to what innovations are out there and then that decision making I think the decision making criteria is important and as you develop from a pilot into how we're going to scale because I um we seem to have a lot of pilots and then we we don't necessarily commit to when we're going to scale so I don't from what I've, what's been fed back to me, it's not a lack of innovation. It's just when we commit to scaling and, and that decision-making criteria. That's right. Thanks, Emma. I'd completely agree with that. We're finding that in Birmingham and Solihull as well. We've had some great pieces of work done, whether it's digital or otherwise, with true innovation and actually having an impact. And despite there being a consistent actually we'll build the business case as we're going along. When it comes to then submitting that business case, there's either nowhere to submit it to or the resources just aren't there. So again, in Birmingham and Solihull, we're having a very similar conversation that as an ICS, we've committed to innovation and meeting outcomes, et cetera. But how do we truly do that in a, in a long-term and sustainable manner? Arjun? Yeah, I think um, <clears throat> this, is, this is where... I think everybody has a similar challenge um, <laughs> is that scale up ability. And I think for me, that that's that system readiness piece. And, and where I come to come at it from is that there's three, I, I like doing things in three. There's again, three breakdowns, you know, there's capacity or lack thereof, there's capability. Um, you know, there is a huge capability gap in the NHS with certain areas, especially for scale up of innovation. Uh, but most importantly, there's also a big culture gap as well. Um, and I do tend to find that people are reticent on making a decision on scale and they keep going around their committees to to avoid making a decision when, you know, perhaps they should just bite the bullet and say, right, this is what we're doing. We're going to focus on these three things for the next two years, which is going to have this impact um, moving forward. I think one of the things that I'm trying to get across and, and identify in uh, Surrey Heartlands is exactly this piece of 
how do we scale what's the governance mechanisms for something when you get good outcomes from a I don't like to say pilot because as Emma alluded to pilots don't really go anywhere but, but a proof of value <laughs> you know when you prove the value of something how do you then actually realize that value at scale and um, what I'm looking at is building into the governance of the change leadership board which is the leaders of the council and the the NHS because um, there's two ICSs in the, in the council footprint uh, but the leaders of the council and the ICSs to then make that decision so they have line of sight of the proof of value projects that are coming down in fact, I want them to select the proof of value projects so they've got you know skin in the game. And then once the outcomes are proven, they should be, you know, once they have the business case and, and what it, the total cost of ownership and what it takes to scale it, um, they should be able to make that decision to scale um, you know, appropriately and, and in a timely manner. Emma? Thank you. I think that's the uh, approach that we are trying to explore as well. And um, just touching on the capability and uh, capacity I think that's key and I don't know if you've had any um, insights program or land innovation landing zones established in your areas but we are trying to model that across Cambridgeshire and Peterborough and obviously there's potential opportunity with funding um, recently been released but I, I think that's um, it's an interesting concept because it's trying to do just that isn't it building the capacity and capability but I didn't know if anyone's got any reflections on how that's worked or not worked in um, your areas um there have been projects and i think you know you can fill some of that capability and capacity gap by doing partnership working uh with industry who have certain skill sets that can be leveraged um you know and i think it, it's a mixture of that culture and capability piece because you have to overcome some of the cultural mindset that industry is bad <laughs> or they're just very transactional in 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 their approach when actually they could be quite transformative or um, a partner is partnership working. So there is a culture piece that needs to be overcome as well. But there, we have done a couple of projects with industry um, in Manchester and previously when I was in Manchester and then and looking to do the same um, in Surrey as well and and uh, yeah utilize and leverage their capacity and, and uh, capabilities. Great. Over to you, Kirsty. Thanks. I, th I think for me, the biggest uh, tool to support scalability is around changing the language. I think also often we're focused on delivering digital projects, but the, the benefit I've had working with my board is that we're talking about um, health enabled, uh, health tech enabled care. Um, so we're using tech to, to deliver patient care and the focus is on the benefits approach of the so what of what difference does it make is does it mitigate a risk does it improve patient outcomes does it offer genuine efficiencies are there social and economic benefits for the county or does it offer cashable savings but historically that number five cashable savings has been the one that everyone's looked at and actually you don't do that when you think about other types of care when you're putting in place new cancer service or a new uh, care at home service, you're thinking about how do you improve the way that you care for patients most efficiently. And that's what we need to do with digital. We need to focus on how, what difference it makes to our patients. And it comes back to, to the points that we talked about earlier as, as we're around patient centric care, that actually if we put the patient at the heart of this and digital helps them to have better outcomes, then it's easier to invest in it. But we need to help our boards to go on that journey and stop thinking about digital as something that's over here on the, the right hand side and out of the way. It's actually part of how we deliver care. 
yeah, I think that's a really great point, Kirsty. Over to you, Azra. I completely agree, Kirsty. And we've got some great examples from COVID, haven't we, where we had sort of the you know the virtual monitoring of long-term conditions using a BP at home, the BP at home project, et cetera. Um, as well as you know, just some simple examples of di- diabetics being able to manage their own um, glucose level readings, et cetera. Um, and now we've even got virtual wards that are using technology um, to be able to care for the patients themselves. But all of those are tech enabled. And I think the way you're framing it sounds perfect in terms of how we then either scale it up or bring about new innov- innovation in those areas. Great. I hope that discussion helped answer your question, Arjun. Um, and finally, I think that that discussion also leads nicely into Emma's question, which was with limited resources within the ICSs, how do we keep momentum up in terms of innovation and sustainability? Do you want to give us some context, that, Emma? Yeah, we're in a world where we need to, innovation is key. You know, Amanda Pritchard's recognised that, that in order to, um, to stay in the NHS moving forward. But we're also in a place where we've got limited resourcing or limiting resources and so how do we make it I think how do we make the right decisions and I don't know what other ICBs are how they're approaching this but um, I'd be interested in to understand how other ICBs are making those decisions with those limited resources to get the most for their investment really. Over to you Ajay. Thanks, Emma. Um, one of the approaches that we, we we have this conversation quite regularly in Birmingham and Solihull in terms of we, there's so much that we want to achieve. If you look at our inception framework, our drawing forward plan, our 10 year strategy, but we also are aware of the pressures that we have in terms of resources, whether that's financial workforce, etc. So you know, it's not just always about finance either. And so one of the things that we're, we're trying to do and that we're describing through some of our work is almost being flexible with the resources that we do have um so by using almost a population health management approach existing teams and resources can be realigned at a locality and neighborhood level um, and one of the examples that we've got of some work happening actually on the ground is um, what we're calling asthma friendly schools um, so what we've done there is at a locality level, health, education and community have teamed up to put more power in the hands of these 10 schools, as well as the teachers, parents and pupils themselves. There's a personalised care and support plan sitting behind, as well, sitting with, with, with each child that has the asthma. But it also then includes empowering parents, um, teachers and children on the condition to manage that on a daily basis. And by bringing the service into the school, you almost create a peer network as well, because those education sessions help bring that peer network around. So not only are the fellow pupils supportive, you also have to have a better understanding with the teachers. And by working with the local authority, what the other things we can also potentially see is by having an open conversation about asthma in schools at that generation with parents, children, and teachers is you've then got an almost sort of offshoot of that in terms of improving air quality it gives that opportunity to actually convey the message as to why there might be a prevalence of children with asthma in that area um so that's just one of the small examples that we've got in terms of how we're actually realigning resources to work with what we've currently got um to help innovation brilliant thanks Azra. over to you Kirsty. 
Yeah, I think that's a fascinating approach. Thanks, Azra. I think using population health and focusing on that prevent type activities, a lot of innovations really very good for those things where we're not dealing with people that have already got extreme conditions, but actually have potential opportunities for us to trial and, and demonstrate categorically that certain tools help to prevent conditions or prevent conditions worsening. Um, so I think that could be really interesting to target our innovations in the future in that direction, um, particularly as we're starting to use our data. We've just got our data all together and we're starting to use our data to plan those innovations that will help us to uh, prevent uh, future costs to the system. Aswin? Thanks, Kirsty. Completely agree. And then our next step in terms of looking at, for example, at that asthma pathway in the, where there is a prevalence of asthma in children is at, at this stage also bringing in the acute acute sector through our acute integrator to say, well, actually, can we put some some specialist services in at the locality and neighbourhood level? So rather than that that individual coming to yourself and with the appointments and access and travel, et cetera, that, you know, do we just align resources for one or two days a week? So it actually services where the need is. So I completely agree that the approach we've currently taken is around the um the current preventative and not so much the acute, but I think the capacity is there to broaden that conversation. So almost then the you you're bringing the treatment into the area as well. Thanks, Arjun. Yeah, I think this is why you've got a great group of people on this um, call, because it's, we do things from a different point of view. So the, the route that I'm sort of taking is that, and I'm lucky enough that I'm not frontline thinking about current services, so I have a bit more headspace to think about future preventative, you know, what could the potential 2B model be? Um, and there's always this trade-off People are too focused on the here and now fighting the burning platform rather than you know being able to put their head up and think about how can we change or how should we change if we're redesigning systems. Um, so I'm more in the latter camp. And, and what I'm trying to do in Surrey is, um, is form an academic care partnership, which is an evolution of an academic health and science partnership. So there are existing models um, around. So the... Um, AHSCs, they're accredited by NA and the National Institute of um, Health Research, but where they traditionally focus on an NHS organisation with a university, um, and then you've got some evolution with uh, other partners like Birmingham Health Partners, where they involve the local city council. We're trying to do this at a system level with the ICS, the Surrey County Council, the university, and the local health innovation network, and our focus is on prevention and integration. So it's very much more on the prevention agenda and um, uh, out of hospital care settings. Uh, and so what we're looking at doing there is really prioritizing innovation and collaboration partnerships and utilizing all that data-driven decision-making and, and stakeholder engagement piece, but focused primarily in areas which aren't on the data, on the day job. Um, and then hopefully, you know, sparking interest in there you know looking at funding mechanisms and then translating that back into actually changing care delivery just to say, yeah we are um a similar approach in came to in peterville where we're, we're looking we've got um a directorate within the icb looking at 
uh, the future in 20 years time and as part of this the way we're we're sort of trialing this at the moment on how we make decisions and using economic modeling on on impact in 20 years time and then where we need to put our money now um, or our investment people money everything um to so starting that prevention now but making sure that we're we're um, spending money wisely um and it's really early on in the journey but i think it's quite positive and people are finding it useful to have uh, an insights driven tool to help support decision making Pleasure. um going back to your um, original question emma was uh, you know, how how do we use limited resources or no no new resource to move things forward. It's almost then almost breaking it down to your individual strategies. So for example, with the workforce strategy where we know there's a shortage, is there a different way of working in that area? And one of the examples we've got, we know we need to look at infant mortality locally. That's one of our priority areas. And when we've looked at that and look at our maternity services, where there's been vacancies with midwives, we've actually employed maternity link support workers. So to really understand those communities and those individuals that fall within the population where the health inequalities might impact them the most, um, to actually use those link workers to almost fill a gap but the resource was already there with the with, with the vacancies for midwives, but almost realigning that because with the workforce, let, let's face it, the workforce isn't there always, um, but realigning that into something that can help. Um, so again, using existing resource, but actually having the space and the ability to think about how we can use it differently across pathways. Emma? Yeah, I think that's um, really interesting and something that we've got to do. And believe that's where innovation and digital can support um other like a different staff mix perhaps what we've traditionally used before when we're performing or supporting patients um and particularly with AI I think that will be really interesting how that develops moving forward and how AI can support a different mix of staff to support patient cohorts in the future Great. Uh, thank you everyone for your answers so before we end the podcast today i'd like to say thank you very much for all the guests for joining and taking their time out of the day once again on the podcast today we've had arjun sikhand director of innovation at surrey heartlands ics we've had azra rashid head of strategy at birmingham and solihull icb emma turner head of innovation at cambridgeshire and peterborough ics and kirsty watson digital director at northamptonshire icb if you are looking to hire for new technical roles or looking for a role yourself, feel free to get in touch with myself or Evolution. Or if you or anyone else you know would like to feature on a future podcast, please message me too. I've been Louis. You can find me on LinkedIn or alternatively visit us at evolutionjobs.com forward slash UK forward slash NHS. Thank you again to all the guests for joining and thank you for listening.